Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tracy Bumgard and Tami Kuza. In our top stories, President Jacob Zuma could appear before a committee probing the building of his private home. A court in Belgium set to rule whether Zimbabwe diamonds should be auctioned to compensate white farmers and World Tourism Day to be observed globally. In economics, South Africa's Energy Department to announce adjustments to fuel prices for the next month. And in sports news, Wallabies make changes to his starting lineup to play against the Springboks. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. 40 countries have called on Libyan leaders to find a peaceful solution to the political turmoil gripping the nation. In a high-level meeting held on the sidelines of the 69th annual session of the UN General Assembly, the countries as well as the AU, EU and Arab League warned Libyan leaders of the dangerous and significant threat of the crisis plaguing the North African country. On Monday, the Libyan parliament approved Prime Minister Abdullah Al-Tani's cabinet after rejecting a previous lineup last week. The new cabinet includes 13 ministers and three deputy prime ministers. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has used his participation in the UN General Assembly debate to urge Western powers to immediately and unconditionally remove sanctions against his country. Mugabe and his inner circles have been under strict EU and US sanctions following Harare's land reform program. Mugabe says these sanctions are aimed at affecting the regime change in his country. Because Zimbabwe has thus been preoccupied with the empowerment of its people economically. She has become a victim of the evil machinations of the United States of America and the European Union, who continue to apply unilateral and illegal sanctions as a foreign policy tool to achieve regime change. These evil sanctions violate the fundamental principles of the United Nations Charter, we once again call for their immediate and unconditional removal. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has urged the leaders of South Sudan to heal the wounds that he says have caused suffering for the people of the new nation. Tens of thousands of people have been killed and nearly two million others have fled their homes since the conflict between the government and rebel forces began nine months ago. Ban says the warring leaders have a responsibility towards the people. The United Nations is supporting the people of South Sudan with the biggest humanitarian operation ever undertaken in our country. Reinforcements of 5,000 peacekeepers are being deployed. We are supporting the IGAD peace process. I have a message for the leaders of South Sudan. You opened the wounds that have caused so much suffering. Now heal them. The parties owe this to their people and future generations. 
Iran's President Hassan Rouhani says he's astonished that murderous terrorist groups call themselves Islamic and that the Western media repeat this false claim. Speaking at the UN General Assembly, Rouhani said uprooting extremism required the spread of justice and development. Rouhani says the distortion of divine teachings to justify brutality and cruelty must not be allowed. I am astonished that these murderous groups call themselves Islamic. What is more astonishing is that the Western media, in line with them, repeats this false claim, which provokes the hatred of all Muslims. The United States has voiced skepticism over reports from the Nigerian military that Boko Haram's leader Abu Bakr Shekau has been killed. In recent clashes with troops, the Nigerian Defense Ministry said Shekau was dead and that Bashir Muhammad killed during recent clashes with troops was a lookalike who had been impersonating him in videos. Earlier, the Nigerian military refused to confirm to previous claims from police and a regional task force in 2009 and last year that Shekau had been killed. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A court in Belgium is set to rule this week whether Zimbabwe diamonds, which were due to be auctioned there, will be attached to compensate a group of Dutch farmers whose properties were seized by the government. It's a second claim against the $45 million worth of diamonds. Last week, South Africa's Amari Platinum lost its court bid to seize the same diamonds claiming Zimbabwe owes it money for lost revenue over a cancelled mining contract. The court case has revived hope among thousands of white farmers who await compensation as Zimbabwe continues to be haunted by its liabilities from its land reform program. Shinganyoka reports. Zimbabwe's diamonds are under siege in one of the first cases of litigation in the international arena over farm seizures. In 2009, the World Bank's International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes awarded a group of Dutch farmers compensation after it found Zimbabwe had violated a bilateral investment protection agreement by seizing their farms without compensation. Frustrated by the slow pace of compensation, the farmers reportedly sold their claim to a U.S. company. That company has now approached the Belgian courts to attach Zimbabwe's assets. The court case has been closely monitored by over 4,000 farmers who've been blocked from contesting land seizures locally. Justice for Agriculture spokesman John Worsley Warswick. We're looking at 350,000 permanent employees, another 270,000 seasonal casual uh, farm workers that resided on those farms, uh, all of whom have lost... Uh, their livelihoods and their homes. Justice for Agriculture has 80 members who sought a compensation order from the SADC tribunal shortly before it was disbanded. The seriousness of this is that all in all it, it constitutes crimes against humanity and there's no statute of limitations. The tangible claims in Zimbabwe uh, government terms, if, if this is dealt with comprehensively in, in, in international law, are going to amount to about 40 billion 
US dollars. Uh, these issues are not going to go away. They have to be dealt with uh, for this country to go forward. The estimated 500 carats of diamonds in Belgium were jointly mined by the state-owned Zimbabwe Mining Development Corporation and companies from Lebanon, South Africa and China operating in the Chiadzwa diamond fields. But chances of seizing the diamonds appear slim. Researcher for Human Rights Watch, Dewa Mavinga. The companies involved in the sale of the diamonds are distinct as an entity from the government of Zimbabwe. So that might raise challenges, but it does uh, uh, give serious embarrassment to the government of Zimbabwe and it compromises all international transactions that the government of Zimbabwe might be involved in. So and it might also scare off investors who might want or might be willing to do business with Zimbabwe. The auction was to be one of the few international sales the country has had held since the global diamond watchdog, the Kimberley certification process, lifted its ban on trade in Zimbabwe's gems. Zimbabwe has dispatched a legal team to Belgium to contest the seizure claim. I'm Shinga in Harare. South Africa's Parliament ad hoc committee reached a stalemate when they could not agree whether or not individuals should be summoned to appear before it. The committee is set up to look at the president's response to the reports by the public protector, the special investigations unit and the security cluster regarding the controversy around money spent on building the president's private home. Opposition parties call for, among others, President Jacob Zuma to appear before the committee. Eventually, committee members agree to adjourn the marathon meeting. Zaline Merrington reports. It was a late night for MPs at the ad hoc committee. Opposition parties made a proposal to draw up a list of people to appear before them. The DA's leader in parliament, Musi Maimani, suggested that some people, including President Jacob Zuma, should be summoned to the committee. So I'd like to propose that in fact we get President Zuma here. That if we like, we can get Advocate Vasson, who's the, who's the author of the SIU report, get uh, the public protector here. for That's her report that we're dealing with. And as an outcome of that, we can get uh, perhaps the ministers of the public works who are involved in the project. We, we, the, I think the list must be there. The Freedom Front Plus MP, Kurnay Mulder, and James Self from the DA cautioned that it was imperative that individuals should be called to account. This is a very serious matter. If we fail in our duty, don't expect anyone to come and account again to this parliament. Now, if we simply take note of the report, make some random recommendations, but if we simply just paper over the cracks, pretend it didn't happen, say that it was all an unfortunate mistake, then we will have profoundly failed our responsibility in the most abject way. And I really would appeal to my colleagues opposite to take their constitutional responsibility seriously and to address the unanswered questions that are contained in this report. Otherwise you make Parliament into a farce. But ANC members would hear none of it. The party's Deputy Chief Whoop, Doris Lakure, said it was unnecessary. It's to consider all these reports. That's number one. Make our own recommendations as this committee to Parliament and table the report on the expected date. What we are not going to agree upon is to call people to come before this Parliament. Reason being that we are not opening an investigation. 
The leader of the EFF, Julius Malema, then issued an ultimatum for the committee. If you want to amend the remedial actions of the public protector, we're going to leave this committee and we'll meet in court. We'll take you to court and let the court announce or pronounce on this matter. We are not going to legitimize thakarism. Now we're being told that we must come up with new recommendations and remedial actions by the public protector are not binding. Due to the constitutional weight of the decisions this committee makes, members agree to adjourn to get legal advice on how to take the matter forward. Zaline Merrington, Parliament. The International Criminal Court has opened a formal investigation into an endless list of atrocities committed in the Central African Republic, Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda said on Wednesday. Bensouda says her office has gathered and scrupulously analyzed relevant information from multiple reliable sources. The move comes after a preliminary ICC investigation earlier this year into the violence that has plagued the country for over 18 months established that there were grants to prosecute war crimes and crimes against humanity. Richard Dyker, director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch. If I may just uh, start very quickly by saying we certainly welcome the announcement from the prosecutor yesterday to open the second investigation. We think it's most needed. We are well aware of the efforts by so many peacekeeping troops from the African Union trying to restrain violence that has horrified the world. We think an ICC investigation that would be impartial, that is looking at all sides, could help to end impunity. Now, the question you asked about the first investigation, it is quite obscure. Back in 2002-2003, the former CAR president, that was President Papase, had requested the support of a Congolese militia group led by Jean-Pierre and his militia group came into and around Bangui and in the course of an internal armed conflict, the forces of Mr. Bemba committed widespread rapes and committed other serious crimes. It was that event that prompted the ICC prosecutor to open what we now know as the first investigation into the CAR. But now, this second investigation, is it warranted at this time? I mean, when things appear to be coming down, you know, okay, there are pockets of violence still in the Central African Republic, but do you really think that this is the right time to announce that an investigation will take place? Well, I think that's a fair question and an important one. Certainly, massive violence and crimes have been committed over the last year, first driven by Seleka and then responded to by anti-Balaka, and thousands and thousands of Central African Republic citizens 
were killed in the course of that, I don't think anyone has, at this point, an accurate total of the number because some of these killings occurred in very remote, hard-to-access areas. In addition, as we know, so much of the country's Muslim population was forced out by the anti-Balaka groups and is living as refugees in neighboring countries with a large section of Muslim citizens from Sahar living in internally displaced persons camp. So first thought is there's no question that crimes that were committed in terms of their gravity and scale require judicial investigations unless we are ready to say these crimes can happen and there can be complete impunity that is no charges or investigations for anyone responsible. Violence continues at a lower level. We, as Human Rights Watch, documented in the last few months a matter of some 146 people in Western CAR. So it's not as if the violence has ceased and the country is back on the road to a stable peace and reconstruction. I would end by saying our view is that ending impunity for the crimes, holding to account those who are responsible, would be a very important element in building a durable peace in the country so that the different communities could come back together and rebuild CAR. That was Richard Dyker, Director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch, on the line from New York, speaking to Jose Khodinake. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A new report by the World Health Organization has warned that the Ebola virus could become a permanent fixture in West Africa, spreading as routinely as malaria or the flu. The UN health body adds that in the worst case scenario, If nothing is done to effectively control the outbreak, there could be about 1.4 million Ebola cases in Liberia and Sierra Leone by the end of January. Daniel Epstein is the spokesperson for WHO in Washington. Well, we are concerned because we have calculated that we need many, many more health workers, many more vehicles, many more personal protective equipment suits to be able to get a grip on this outbreak. We think we need about 20,000 more health workers on the ground, about 1,000 international staff. We've asked for 3,000 ambulances and motorcycles to transport patients and to transport contact tracers. And we estimate that we need about 3 million personal protective suits for health workers to be able to treat patients. We've asked for funds for those needs and we hope that with those we will be able to control the outbreak. Daniel, it's been about six months since the outbreak was reported. Do you think that experts are beginning to understand the spread of the disease better? Yes, 
this was an unusual outbreak because previous Ebola outbreaks in Africa have been rural and small villages and usually confined to one geographic area. Since this one began in a border area of southeastern Guinea, where people travel freely back and forth to Liberia and to Sierra Leone, the epidemic spread very rapidly. And by June, we became very concerned that there was going to be a large uptick in cases, which there was. And then as people went to capital cities of the three countries, it spread into urban areas. So this has become a very large outbreak in large cities, which is very different from what we've had before. And what appears to be exacerbating the struggle to contain the virus quickly? The impediments are really people and funding. We need many more healthcare workers. We need more funds to pay them, to have the transport necessary, to give them the personal protective equipment suits they need. We need massive training of health workers and how to deal with Ebola patients. And we need huge amounts of contact sensors so that we can follow the things that we know work, finding everybody who has had close contact with an Ebola patient and following up with them for 21 days to make sure they're not infected. If they are infected, we have to isolate them. But mainly we need more treatment centers for Ebola patients in Liberia. Some experts have expressed concern that global awareness of the Ebola epidemic has not translated into effective action. Your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's starting. This increased awareness, the uptake of the United Nations as a whole of the Ebola crisis, the determination by the UN and the Security Council and the General Assembly that there would be a system-wide response to Ebola I think will help us to get the resources in place to control the outbreak. Finally, with the risk of continued expansion of the Ebola outbreak real, what has been the role of the WHO in curbing this outbreak? Well, I think we've been the main technical agency working with the Ministries of Health in curbing the disease. We've deployed over 500 people to Africa to work on Ebola, everything from epidemiologists to logisticians, to communication experts, social mobilization people. I think we are playing the central role, but we certainly need help from other agencies, from other countries, and from individuals even who want to contribute, who want to come to Africa and help treat Ebola patients or help in the logistics. I think if we get more help, more people and more funds, we will be able to control the outbreak in six to nine months. That was Daniel Epstein, who is a spokesperson for the World Health Organization in Washington, talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Meanwhile, with a possibility of the number of Ebola cases rising from between 500,000 to just over a million by next year, South Africa's Health Ministry has created the Ebola Response Fund to coordinate and manage relief assistance for the affected countries. The country's Department of Health is working with the World Health Organization to coordinate and harmonize support for the response of the Ebola outbreak. More than 5,000 cases and over 2,800 deaths have been reported this month, primarily in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Executive Director at South Africa's National Institute for Occupational Health, Dr. Berry Kistnasami, explains. 
The Director General and the Minister of Health have been quite active in supporting the process towards alleviating the humanitarian crisis that is a consequence of the Ebola outbreak. If you recall, in August we had, had brought about some travel restrictions and announced uh, activities at our ports of entry in South Africa to prevent any entry into South Africa of Ebola. But, you know, South Africa is safe, but, uh, the, you know, there are major social and humanitarian problems that have arisen now in uh, the affected countries, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. So the issue was then to set up the Ebola Response Fund together with the private sector, civil society, and academia to assist in the South African response to support the affected countries. So that's what the Response Fund is about. We wanted to raise about 250 million rands in cash or in kind. And uh, the fund's objectives are to set up a functioning 40-bed Ebola treatment unit. It's kind of a semi-hospital where, you know, there are beds for observation and containment. So a 40-bed Ebola treatment unit in Sierra Leone, then to have human resources, uh, South Africans and other uh, health professionals that will go and staff the unit. Laboratory capacity, we currently have a laboratory in Sierra Leone, and we want to expand that laboratory because we have to make a diagnosis, you know, in Ebola in patients, and you need laboratory capacity. So we already have a laboratory there, but we want to expand it. And then there's the issue of what's called surveillance, to actually contact trace of people who have come into contact with people who are infected with Ebola. So there's what's called a surveillance system and then to reach out. Then, of course, you know the entire logistics of getting staff across, setting up the treatment unit, provision of uh, personal protective equipment, like the fully fledged uh, gowns and masks and gloves, uh, provision of medical supplies, generators to generate electricity. So there's a whole logistics management to get these things into the different countries that we are supporting, Liberia and Sierra Leone. And then the issue was also about training local staff, and lastly, social mobilization through pamphlets and support. But this would be done mainly by supporting local people in uh, Liberia and uh, Guinea and uh, Sierra Leone. This response fund is to show the affected countries that South Africa cares. On our side, are we ready in case um, Ebola comes to South Africa? Are we prepared? Can we still say that South Africa is prepared? South Africa is definitely prepared. I mean, the Department of Health moved quite fast once the World Health Organization, of course, we're working also quite closely with the World Health Organization, apart from the South African response, together with the World Health Organization country response. We definitely are ready. The minister and the director general have been very active. And at the management level, we have a fully-fledged team led by Dr. Prue Benson in the National Department of Health that's coordinating an interdepartmental committee that's home affairs, uh, you know, with the immigration authorities, the airlines, the private sector. So there's an interdepartmental committee, similar to a committee that we had during the World Cup that oversees ports of entry, looks at surveillance systems, emergency preparedness of health facilities. We have designated health facilities in the public and private sector in the event of somebody coming into South Africa where we could look after them. Health professionals have been trained, but not only in South Africa. The minister and uh, has also hosted a meeting of uh, SADC. We've trained uh, health professionals from other SADC countries in terms of also being able to be prepared because, you know, we share common borders with many countries and, and it was important to also work in the region, not just to promote and protect South Africans. In addition, the Minister, the Director General and myself have been working closely with the mining sector, the information communication sector, the retail sector and banking. As you might be aware, Jane, that uh, many of our companies in South Africa have operations in West Africa. And we started the process of engagement with them at a very early stage to begin to understand what are their operations, who are the people involved and 
We have a special system for people that get back to South Africans who have all the rights, as you know, constitutionally to come back to South Africa. And how do we go about getting them in without creating any stress on the South African population? Now, lastly, Barry, how forthcoming is the private sector with regards to making donations for um, the Ebola Response Fund? It's been overwhelming in terms of the response. It seems like everybody's just waiting for somebody to take the lead. And uh, the Director General and the Minister have been quite good at taking the lead, both in terms of informing Cabinet. But in the private sector, the Director General hosted a joint meeting with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, where there were about 60 senior representatives of uh, most of the listed companies on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. There were pledges in cash and in kind at the meeting, and others were then uh, going to reach out because they did not know what we were going to speak about until we got to the meeting at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And once they realized that we were setting up this fund and that they could play a role, uh, they've come to the party. It's, it's really been overwhelming in terms of saying, look, you know, we're coming to the party and uh, this is what we're going to do. The Department of Health is working in the University of Witwatersrand and an NGO called Right to, uh, right to Care and also the Witwatersrand to the Productive Unit. So these are units based at the University of Witwatersrand to help to uh, project manage the the response fund, you know, set up the mechanism, issue the donations, taxes, and then help out with logistics and support. That's where, you know, academia has now come to the party and said that we will also help. We're quite positive and many people have pledged personal protective equipment. Uh, there are some volunteers coming through. So we are very positive that South Africans do care and, and are willing to put uh, money and resources behind the, the Ebola response fund. That was Dr. Barry Kitsnasami, Executive Director at South Africa's National Institute for Occupational Health, talking to Jane Matebula. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. South Africa's Minister and the Presidency, Jeff Khadebe, says they have noted calls from some South Africans for government to deny Nigerian televangelist TB Joshua a visa to visit the country. Forty countries call on Libyan leaders to find a peaceful solution to the political turmoil gripping the nation. And UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon urges the leaders of South Sudan to heal the wounds that he says have caused suffering for the people of the new nation. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Minister of Transport, Depoor Peters, says unless South Africa is fully equipped to deal with challenges of maritime safety and security, as well as environmental issues, the growing maritime industry will be negatively affected. She was addressing stakeholders celebrating World Maritime Day at Langaban on the Cape West Coast yesterday. Berenice Moss reports. The maritime industry in the country is crucial to the economy as 85% of the country's trade comes and goes by sea. Nearly 4,000 people are employed at the nine ports and another 17,000 on local vessels. 
adherence to the international maritime authorities' standardized conventions gives the country greater access to international trade via the sea. Peters says there is a surge in global trade and a marked increase in maritime shipping activities. She says growing the maritime sector has to be done in partnership with other countries. She says adherence to, among others, safety and security and environmental conventions of the IMO enhances chances of growth. You could have the conventions and if you don't comply, then they, they, we will not be able to have a ship register, we will not be able to fly our flag and we would want to enter that particular sector. But also the, the key things is want to make sure that we close the gaps that exist in terms of our access to our ports so that everything that happens on our ports and our harbors is very safe. South Africa is one of nearly 170 member states of the IMO. COO of the South African Maritime Safety Authority, Sobantu Tiali, says international harmony comes in when one set of rules applies to all countries. However, as you apply those rules, it needs to be very clear what the implication to your economy is going to be. You're likely to end up picking up slightly more costs because then you need to comply. It is important that those are quantified. But more importantly, there's an advantage that um, arises with every instrument. If it's technological, it means you need to be ahead with your research. And so um, every um, instrument gives rise to a set of challenges and opportunity. The IMO is a specialized agency of the United Nations aimed at developing and maintaining a regulatory framework for shipping. South Africa has already adopted several of these conventions and continues through its own frameworks and protocols to implement more. I'm Berenice Moss in Cape Town. South Africa's Tourism Department, together with the Northern Cape Province, will host the official World Tourism Day celebrations tomorrow. The theme for this year's celebration is The Desert Comes Alive, which will be a theatrical display of extreme activities. According to MEC John Block of the Department of Finance, Economic Development and Tourism, hosting World Tourism Day offers an exceptional opportunity for the Northern Cape to showcase itself as a unique tourism destination. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Mahlangu is in the Northern Cape and filed this report. The festivities will commence this morning where South Africa's Tourism Minister Derek Heinekom will host a business breakfast in Uppington. Delegates will then visit several arts and crafts projects in the region to see the impact of tourism development in local communities. They'll then be able to experience watching the desert come alive by either taking a trip through to the Kalahadi Transfrontier Park or heading to Hatskenspan. The lineup at Hatskenspan will showcase the untold adventure and cultural opportunities presented by the Northern Cape, including an air show with aerobatic displays, live music and entertainment, camel rides and microlight flights. The local communities will play an integral part in the program with schools participating in a soapbox debut in conjunction with the Northern Cape Education Department and a wire car competition for local learners and community members. Visitors will also be able to experience the high-octane thrills of the third annual Kalahari Speed Week, where exotic and classic cars, modern-day supercars and superbikes will try to set the fastest time over a set distance. There will also be a demonstration featuring vehicles using alternative power sources, such as electronic and solar propulsions. World Tourism Day is commemorated each year on the 27th of September.
Its purpose is to foster awareness among the international community of the importance of tourism and its social, cultural, political and economic value. The event seeks to address the global challenge outlined in the United Nations Millennium Development Goals and to highlight the contribution the tourism industry can make in reaching these goals. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Matlangu. The Indian High Commission to South Africa has launched an ambitious campaign which aims to turn the country into a global manufacturing hub. The campaign includes plans to cut red tape, develop infrastructure and make it easier for companies to do business. Manufacturing contributes only 15% to India's gross domestic product and authorities want to raise it to about 25%. The launch of the campaign held in Johannesburg elaborated on the major infrastructure projects and new measures to stimulate economic growth. More from T. Armstrong Changseng, Deputy High Commissioner of India. The whole idea is to make India as a global manufacturing hub. The idea behind it is to drive the economy, to have growth in India, to generate employment. The background beyond this is that We have a new government in India which is about four months old now and uh, they have kind of reviewed the policies till date and realized that a little bit of our uh, our own industry was going out. So like it was to encourage our own business leaders to remain as well as to encourage world business leaders to come and invest in India. We have the technology, we have the youth, we have skilled manpower and whatever else, and we are cutting down on all the red tape. And we know that some of the other programs that you have is that you have other business leaders having to only apply for a visa perhaps when they get to India. What are some of the other um, incentives for foreign direct um, investment? What's incentivizing India is basically the huge market which is India. India with a population of 1.3 billion itself and a huge middle class is itself a big market which attracts people to invest in India and of course you have technology, you have labor, you have what you call jugaad means some kind of uh, way of doing things in, in an innovative way. So this attracts investors from uh, across the world. You must remember that South Africa and India did not do business in, in the apartheid area. In fact we had very strong sanctions and there was so we started off from a very low base and we have gone up to 15 billion dollars of bilateral trade which is quite remarkable and it's growing quite steadily every year that being said in terms of investment you'd be surprised that there are many investments from south africa to india and like likewise from india also in the, in, the, in the country in various sectors so i'm very pleased with the level of interaction between the businesses in India and South Africa. Tell us briefly about some of the you know, industrial and commercial regulatory frameworks, that some of the changes that have been made in that regard. Yes, what the new government and what has been made, what we are trying to highlight in this Make in India is that, look, doing business, manufacturing in India is not difficult anymore. Earlier you had, you needed to have lots of licenses, a lot of tedious forms, a lot of inspections. So you had a thing called license Raj. Raj means a regime or a, a rule. Then you also had an inspection Raj. So it's like inspectors would come and like harass you and all that. So those have been kind of eliminated. Steps have been eased up. 
even one of the highlights of the new prime minister, what he has done is he's gone through all the application forms of anything. He said, why do you need a 10-page form to apply for something when all the details are there? Make all these into one page. So more or less cutting down on unnecessary things. That itself will ease things up. That was T. Armstrong Chan Sang, Deputy High Commissioner of India, and he was talking to Khumutso Mopulane at the event. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Greenpeace International and Greenpeace India has welcomed the Indian Supreme Court's landmark decision on the country's coal scam following the court's cancellation of the licenses of 214 coal blocks situated in forest areas. Significantly, this included Essa and Hindalko's Mahan coal block, where the Mahan Sangrish Samiti and Greenpeace India has been engaged in a long campaign with the company over proposed open-cast coal mining. Wandile Kalipa reports. The campaign against Essa and Hindalko's Mahan coal block where the Mahan, Sangas, Samiti and Greenpeace India have been engaged in a long battle with the company over the proposed open cast coal mine is over following dirty coal being shown a red card by India's Supreme Court. Vinuta Gopal, climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace India, explains. So the Supreme Court has cancelled 214 coal allocations out of a total of 218 coal allocations that were made between 1993 and 2011. And the reason for this is because they have said all of these allocations have been arbitrary, there is no transparency in the manner in which it was done, and there seems to be illegalities. So it has in fact declared all the coal blocks allotted in this period illegal. And in the order yesterday, it has actually cancelled all of them. So none of them can operate, which means only four blocks, which are already in operation, have been spared. What the court has also very clearly said is that companies and the government cannot fritter away natural resources to just benefit a few, that these natural resources belong to the country and therefore these illegalities will not be taken lightly which is certainly a landmark decision, and this has implications for how this new government will now implement a transparent process in allocating coal. And the other big implication is that this means that cheap coal in India is a thing of the past. It is the end of cheap coal, and this, we believe, is a good thing because all these resource extraction industries operate in an extremely murky manner, and the signal from the court now is that that will not be accepted. The people in the Madhya Pradesh celebrated the court's decision as well as other communities who have been fighting for their rights in the forest regions. So in the forests in Madhya Pradesh where Greenpeace has been working with the local community, there were celebrations yesterday. And this is true of many other communities as well who've been fighting for their rights. 
in forest regions which were being given away to companies for mining and all of these communities have won yesterday with the supreme court decision because now the supreme court has clearly said that you cannot violate laws and there are laws in india to protect the rights of these forest communities so there were celebrations yesterday in mahan where green peace works and i am sure in other places as well the supreme court of india's decision is a vindication of the resistance of the communities who are living in the forest areas turned into open cast coal mines so this verdict is a vindication of their resistance because they were resisting it on account of the fact that they have rights in the indian law and they were demanding those rights and even though this particular supreme court ruling is not about those laws but the supreme court has also sent a very clear signal that you cannot violate laws and you cannot circumvent laws and that is a very powerful signal to this new government which is trying to suppress such resistance in areas around coal mines greenpeace india's campaign to encourage the government to invest in renewable energy has been boosted by the decision of the supreme court certainly so what we now want the government to do is first of all ensure that it does implement laws because when they are now going to auction these coal blocks in addition to transparency and in addition to following proper process we also believe that they should not auction blocks in forest areas and certainly they should not auction blocks without ensuring that the rights of these communities living in these areas are upheld in addition to that this certainly like i said starts making coal much more expensive and this also sends a signal to the government that renewable energy and energy efficiency is where it should be looking to fill the gap on electricity in the country because it can increase that very quickly and provide quality power to the people and in a decentralized manner so the millions who don't have access to electricity in india today can actually get electricity very quickly through decentralized renewable energy solutions and that is the way the government should be moving that was vinuta gopal climate and energy campaigner at greenpeace india reporting for channel africa i'm wandile kalipa in johannesburg Our economics update up next with Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Lulu. The full implications of the United Nations post-2015 development agenda rests on the expeditious reform of governance structures of the Bretton Woods institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. This is according to Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe at the 69th session of the UN General Assembly in New York last night. It is high time that we address the democratic deficit in these institutions and improved their legitimacy these reforms must reflect current realities and ensure the full voice and participation of developing countries in their decision making and norm setting 
The International Monetary Fund has reached an agreement with Mali which could see the West African nation receive aid following the suspension by IMF and the World Bank earlier this year. The agreement is on new spending rules and also on the amendment of Mali's 2014 budget to correct overbilling. Mali secured over $4 billion in donor pledges last year to rebuild after two after twin crises in 2012. The South African Energy Department is expected to announce adjustments to fuel prices for the next month. The country is a net importer of oil and adjusts its fuel price each month to account for changes in the rand exchange rate, the international oil price and government levies. It remains unclear who will be named as South Africa's new central bank governor. This follows the announcement by current governor Jill Marcus that she will not be renewing her five-year contract when it expires in November. The South African presidency and finance minister Ntlantlanene has provided little clarity on who her successor will be. The delay by President Jacob Zuma is fueling speculation. Apple has broken its silence on complaints about bending iPhones. The new iPhones, the new phones rather, face criticism over their bendability, dubbed Bendgate. Social media and online forums have been abuzz with comments about how the new phones can bend when placed in back pockets or while wearing skinny jeans. In an email, Apple says a bend in iPhone is extremely rare, adding that it's in, a, in its first six days of sale, only nine customers had contacted Apple with a bent iPhone 6 Plus. In the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11.19 South African Rand, at 9.05 Botswana Pula and at 6.16 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.61 to the British pound and at 0.77 to the euro. In the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,224 and platinum at $1,309 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $97.05 a barrel. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you, Tracy. Up next, our sports update with Tammy Kluza. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. Let's start with soccer, where South Africa's Bafana Bafana coach Ifrahim Sheikhs Mashaba has announced his team to face Congo in two crucial 2015 Africa Cup of Nations matches next month. Mashaba has made six changes to the team that pick up four points against Sudan and Nigeria earlier this month. The inclusion of Keza Chiefs veteran midfielder Rineilu Litsulenyane and Orlando Paris striker Kemit Erasmus who between them have scored 11 goals this season. Another notable inclusion is that of Ajax Amsterdam midfield maestro Tulani Serrero. And Mashaba says that all these players deserve the call-ups. There is not much that we can say about these players. But uh, I would like to say to something about Litsulunyani. He comes in as a backup. His kind of performance that he's giving, I think it will help us with time. But uh, that's, that's why we're having Litsulenyan here. 
little bit of his experience and aggressiveness in the middle of the park. With Serrero, there isn't much that we can talk. He has to come, let's have a look at him. What can he give us in terms of trying to achieve our goals? Now, in the Cup Confederations Cup, Sui Sport of Ivory Coast will aim to maintain their advantage when they visit ACLA part of Congo for the second leg of their Cup Confederations Cup semi-final at the Stade Denis Sassongueso in Dolisi tomorrow afternoon. Sui Sport side hold a slender advantage after winning a first leg 1-0 at home in Abidjan this past weekend with Christian Kumani netting the winner early in the second half. In the other group stage, ACLA part won one and lost one of their three home games, while Sui Sport also one one and lost one of their three away games. And now in local football, still residing and riding the crest following their M10A title triumph last weekend in Devon, Kaiser Chiefs coach Stuart Baxter says that they are expecting a tactical game against Steve Compella's resilient Marisbeck United at the FNP Stadium tomorrow evening. Baxter reaffirmed that the log leaders will be looking to keep their unbeaten run in the Absa Premiership intact. Maritzburg is going to be a difficult game for many reasons. One, because Steve is a creative coach and even though he changes his players often, he, uh, he always gives them a, a game plan that's, uh, that suits them. And two, he's got a good personality, so he, he gets the most out of his players. So I think Maritzburg are always going to be a tough, a tough proposition with Steve Compella. Now in rugby, Wallabies coach Erwin McKinsey has made three changes to the starting lineup to play against the Springboks in their rugby championship encounter at Newlands and Cape Town on Saturday. Queensland Reds hooker Sia Fainga will make his first appearance for the Wallabies this year, while Brambis winger Joe Tomane returns after a spate of injuries that kept him out of the national team this year. McKinsey says that he has been impressed by how Fainga has worked at training and believes that he will make a meaningful contribution to to the team. Well, obviously, uh, we've had some changes as we've gone along, but you know, we want to we recognise that set pieces are important, and uh, I think that's a particular strength of his. I've known Sarah for a long time, and uh, yeah, it's an area we think we can get a little bit more um, consistency in. And finally, in golf, the 40th Ryder Cup is upon us at Glen Eagles, and after all the spirit. We know the opening day four balls, which include Peter Rory McIlroy and Sergio Garcia against Phil Mickelson and Keegan Bradley. Nick Tai reports. Inevitably, that's the standout match of the four for the first morning, and not only because of Mickelson joking about the legal situation affecting McIlroy and Graham McDowell. McIlroy and Garcia have had a tremendous summer, grown to become great friends, and made the suggestion to Captain Paul McGinley that the two of them could work as a pairing. Bradley and Mickelson combined to great effect at Medina, winning their three matches together. Mickelson loves and is loved in Scotland. Bradley is a cheerleader for the US team. Europe's talisman Ian Poulter combines with the local hero Stephen Gallagher against rookies Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed. Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson lead off against Barbara Watson and Webb Simpson. And Thomas Bjorn and Martin Keimer take on Ricky Fowler and Jimmy Walker. Ian Poulter, who is, who is prepared and ready to go after an indifferent season, feels that he has his celebrations in proportion to the occasion. I'm ready. I've been ready for a few weeks now, so um, looking forward to it. I think it's um, 
It's set up very nicely. The golf course is uh, in fantastic shape, and I think uh, the team are, uh, are full of confidence and ready to go. That's the end of our sport, and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, President Jacob Zuma could appear before a committee probing the building of his private home and a court in Belgium set to rule whether Zimbabwe diamonds should be auctioned to compensate white farmers. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for this week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Numanizo Mandela, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. You can also get a hold of us on Twitter at Africa Rise and Shine. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Indoyami by Ringo Madlingos.